Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there and welcome to the second hour of our broadcast, the Loving Liberty broadcast with yours truly, Brian Hyde. So whether you're listening to us on KTalk, 1640 AM in Salt Lake City, or you're catching the live stream on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, or maybe you're even just catching the podcast, turns out that's a thing these days. And it's a very handy thing in that you can listen anytime it suits your fancy. I'm glad you're part of our audience, and I want to take just a moment here. In fact, I'm going to pull up just, I've got to, excuse me for a moment here while I pull up my uh, Facebook Messenger I have seen a video going around for the last few days. You have probably seen this, too. I can't tell you how many people have uh, have sent out this uh, video of Dr. Judy Mikovits called Plandemic. And maybe it's just the contrarian in me that goes, huh, that's interesting. It seems as quick as that video is posted, it is yanked by YouTube. I don't know if Facebook is, has got their, uh, you know, censorship game, you know, on par with YouTube. But YouTube, it, this stuff, this stuff is like YouTube is a vampire and this video is a garlic, a bushel full of garlic. I mean, it is just, it's crazy. Their response, they can't get rid of it quick enough. Now, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not an epidemiologist. I can't tell you if the things that uh, this doctor, Judy Mikovits has to say I can't tell you if they are legitimate or not. But my friend made a comment, and and I agree wholeheartedly with what he says here. I pointed out, you know, it's disturbing how hard YouTube is working to keep pulling this video down. And my friend said, yes, we are in the midst of a war. Now, that may seem like a simple thing to say, but it, it just hit me right to my heart we really are. And it's not just on the whole uh, pandemic, you know, the coronavirus, who do you believe, whatever. It's it's on a lot of different fronts. There's a lot of information and misinformation out there. It carries over into the political realm. It carries into the culture. But there is a definite war going on for good information, or at least truthful information. And I want to tell you right up front, I'm not putting myself up here as, you know, so the one source of truth, which you can rely on no matter what, well, that would be me. Because there is always the chance that I may get it wrong, too. Now, I'll tell you just as, as a matter of my personal moral compass guides me to, to whatever information I present for your consideration. I do so without any requirement or any expectation. Hey, you better believe this or you're stupid. Okay, so that's the difference between me and I guess a lot of exchanges on Facebook or social media. I don't expect you to take it as gospel truth. If I put it out there, though, I'm putting it out there primarily because I think there may be something worth considering here. If nothing else, even if you don't embrace it as your own, there is a perspective that can add depth of understanding to what you are taking in and and how you're seeing the world. And hopefully it gives you a little more complete idea of what's going on. And that's why I get very suspicious when when someone works overtime. No, 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 but you can't look at that. You can't see that. You can't hear that. You can't read this. It's like they don't trust you and me 
to be able to look at information and weigh it for ourselves. And you don't have to have a Ph.D. in some, you know, deep scientific background in order to do this. All you have to do is have uh, an inquisitive mind. The desire to know the truth. It does take a little bit of courage because sometimes the truth will take you down some scary rabbit holes. That's just the way it is. And a willingness to, to be humble enough to ask questions, to say, I don't know. I want to learn about that. That's all it takes. And when someone substitutes their judgment for yours, well, that's all good and fine, Brian. But uh, you know what? This you, you don't even want to see this. You don't even want to talk to those people over there. You don't even want to look in that direction. Maybe I'm just weird, but to me, that feels for all the world like someone wants to control what I'm thinking. Someone wants to dictate what is allowable opinion. And of course, when I say opinion, I mean even even things that may be wrong. Because we're dealing with human beings after all. So I think we are in the midst of a war. And I don't necessarily believe it's a war between the left and the right. I don't think it's between, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, the conservatives and the progressives. I think the war that we are a part of and have been a part of since long before any of us arrived on the scene is an eternal battle between light and darkness, between coercion and free agency. The names and faces are going to change from time to time, but the tactics never really do. And if someone is saying, hey, you can't, you're not allowed to think or to speak or to to even consider these ideas. That is not a person who is working to bring truth and light into the world. So beware. All right. I'm sorry that that turned into much more of a little soapbox speech than I intended it to. But but there it is. I'm glad you're accessing this program and others like it as a potential source of truth and light. And I promise you, from the bottom of my heart, to the best of my ability, I will never tell you anything that I know to be false. Doesn't mean I'm going to have all the answers, and it doesn't mean I will always be right. But I do place a very high value on truth, and I I place a high value on that credibility that comes along with that as well. I think there's a very serious stewardship and responsibility that comes with this. As in, I think I will answer to God personally one day. How truthful were you in the things that you shared with those unfortunate enough to be in your audience? Okay, maybe he'll be a little more positive about it. But I want to stand there with a clear conscience and say, I did my best to be a voice that people could count on, or at least to present ideas that that would give people a better understanding of the world around them without trying to mislead them. And let's face it, there are some people who are extremely talented in communication. And and part of their talent, if you can call it such, is they're very talented in deceiving. A little bit of truth mixed in with just the right amount, just the right ratio of falsehood. And you can take a lot of people off course. And it can't be the kind of thing that somebody else stands up and protects you from. Oh, I am here standing here in my Superman cape. I will, you know, take those truth bullets or those falsehood bullets and they'll bounce off my chest. Nope. You got to make yourself bulletproof. Well, propaganda proof. That's a work that it's a responsibility that falls to every single one of us. 
And the sooner we get started on it, the more positive of a force for good, for light, for truth we're going to be in this world. And I don't have to tell you, we really need more people to step up and do this. I'm not the only one who feels this call. I I associate with a great number of people who do this in their own way and in their own sphere of influence every single day. But if you have those kind of thoughts, cross your mind. If you've ever had that little tug in your heart that says, you know, you ought to be a part of this as well. There's, There's things that you could be doing. I'm urging you, I'm, I'm asking you, go with it. Find the courage to make your feet start moving and embrace that sense of mission. It's yours and yours alone. It doesn't have to look like anybody else's, but do it. Not because I told you to or I tried to persuade you to, but because the world needs you to do it. It's essential that you do it. All right. I'm going to open the lines up here after in a couple of segments, but uh, there was a, an article that I came across today by Dan Hugger. This was actually published yesterday on intellectualtakeout.org. Gavin Newsom and the Limits of Science. I see a lot of back and forth on social media, and, and look, some of it just comes down to uh, some people just want to be the smartest person in the room. That's all they want. And they will appeal to authority and appeal to credentials. Well, you know, with my PhD, with my Juris Doctorate, uh, with my master's degree in this, you know, obviously I know more than you. But you have to ask, what is the real goal? You know, is, is, is the purpose of life to, to win as many arguments online as possible? Or is it to help each other understand What's going on? And in this case, maybe understand the stakes of what is at risk or what is to be gained. And I see a lot of appeals to science. Well, you know, you people who don't believe in science, the ones of you who aren't wearing masks, the ones who won't do what we say. You're a science denier. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to share with you this article from Dan Hugger about California Governor Gavin Newsom and the limits of science. Because if there has been any public figure who has enthusiastically embraced science as the basis for why I can do whatever I need to do and tell you to do whatever I want you to do and use the police to force you to do all these things, Gavin Newsom is that guy. Oh, it's all scientific, don't you know? You can't argue with that. Who are you, a scientist? I didn't think so. Shut up and sit down. I think that's how it's supposed to work. We're going to poke a few holes on uh, the limits of science and also the limits of uh, Gavin Newsom's power. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Let's dive right into this article about Gavin Newsom and the limits of science. I'll open up the phone lines here in a few minutes, but hang on. This is from Dan Hugger, published on intellectualtakeout.org. And he says, there have been many responses to the COVID-19 pandemic in all spheres of life, from businesses, educational institutions, churches, and within close, intimate human relationships. Most of these responses have arisen spontaneously as people's duties to protect themselves and others, both individuals and communities, have become plain to them. Now, he says government at all levels has also acted, imposing a series of sometimes necessary but often arbitrary and capricious restrictions on economic and social life. 
Protests from citizens concerned with the economic and social impact of these restrictions have taken place from Michigan to California, and the concerns of protesters are varied. And as with any mass movement, some are more reasonable than others. Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan and Governor Gavin Newsom of California both have argued that the restrictions imposed are somehow beyond politics and matters of science. Well, isn't that convenient? Here's a tweet from Gavin Newsom. Politics and protests will not drive our decision making. Science, data and public health will drive our decision making. Hashtag stay home, save lives. Hey, you might want to send that one uh, Bill de Blasio's way. Or uh, Andrew Cuomo's way. I understand a lot of the people that they're treating right now for coronavirus in New York were staying at home. Whoops. Okay. Now, the article goes on to say the belief that matters of public policy should be decided by science betrays a profound misunderstanding of both science and politics. Science is, as the economist Henry Hazlitt once put it, nothing more than an organized solution of a number of related problems. Politics itself is a science, hence the discipline of political science. By pitting politics and science against each other, both Governors Whitmer and Newsom are making the argument that the natural sciences should be privileged over the social sciences. But can the natural sciences guide us in the way that politicians seem to believe they can? The late Nobel Prize winning American theoretical physicist Richard Feynman gets to the bottom of what the natural sciences are and what they can and cannot do in his delightful lecture, What is Science? And he begins with an examination of the standard textbook definitions of natural science and what they fail to appreciate. So this is Richard Feynman, quote, There is some kind of distorted distillation and watered down and mixed up words of Francis Bacon from some centuries ago. Words which were then, which then were supposed to be the deep philosophy of science. But one of the greatest experimental scientists of the time, who was really doing something, William Harvey said that what Bacon said science was, was the science that a Lord Chancellor would do. He, meaning Bacon, spoke of making observations, but omitted the vital factor of judgment about what to observe and what to pay attention to. End quote. So natural science isn't just something out there that directs us, but something that is done by involving human inquiry and judgment. Back to Richard Feynman, quote, and that is what the science what science is the result of the discovery that it is worthwhile rechecking by new direct experience and not necessarily trusting the human race's experience from the past i see it that way that is my best definition End quote. so the natural sciences employ a specific method of inquiry suited to providing solutions to a number of related problems but it's not an authority to be appealed as a guide to action Back to Richard Feynman again, quote, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. When someone says science teaches such and such, he is using the word incorrectly. Science doesn't teach anything. Experience teaches it. If they say to you science has shown such and such, you might ask, how does science show it? How did the scientists find out? How? What? Where? It should not be science has shown, but this experiment or this effect has shown, end quote. That's a pretty cool distinction. Now, going back to the article here by Dan Hugger, he says the natural sciences are not the only way we know things, not the only means by which that we should employ rather to discover the truth about our world or to inform our actions. 
As Gordon Smith and Jill Pell observed in the British Medical Journal, the effectiveness of parachutes has not been subjected to rigorous evaluation by using randomized controlled trials. That's funny. The coronavirus is a novel virus which was only introduced to humans in 2019. So we know precious little about the virus, although scientists are endeavoring to discover more. In early March, U.S. health officials advised Americans not to wear facial masks and have now reversed that advice. No experiment was conducted, no effect shown. Policy was not changed because of the rigorous application of natural science, but out of intuition and an abundance of caution. Dan Hugger says waiting for science is not an advisable course of action in the midst of this pandemic, during which we must act on imperfect information. Marshal Ferdinand Jean-Marie Folk describes perfectly the analogous situation of war. Quote, the truth is no study is possible on the battlefield. One does there simply what one can in order to apply what one knows. Therefore, in order to do even a little, one has to already know a great deal and to know it well. End quote. So what can we know better than natural science relevant to COVID-19 is the limits of what natural science can tell us. The temptation to outsource the difficult work of the social sciences, including politics, to the physical sciences, as Governors Whitmer and Newsom are misguidedly seeking to do, is an old one. The late Nobel laureate Friedrich von Hayek warned of this temptation in economics in his 1974 Nobel Prize lecture, The Pretense of Knowledge. This is how Hayek put it, quote, under the position or rather unlike the position that exists in the physical sciences, in economics and other disciplines that deal with essentially complex phenomena. The aspects of the events to be accounted for about which we can get quantitative data are necessarily limited and may not include important ones. While in the physical sciences, it is generally assumed, probably with good reason, that any important factor which determines the observed events will itself be directly observable and measurable. In the study of such complex phenomena as the market, which depend on the actions of many individuals, all the circumstances which will determine the outcome of a process, for reasons which I shall explain later, will hardly ever be fully known or measurable. End quote. Now, this is equally applicable to the complex phenomena of politics. Citizens cannot be devalued and dismissed by their government in the name of crude scientism. Their authority rests on the consent of the governed, not on what science is telling them. Prudential judgments must be made, sometimes in the face of protest and opposition from citizens, and the responsibility for those difficult decisions cannot be outsourced. In attempting to farm out the responsibility for these prudential judgments to science, politicians endanger the work of true scientists and their invaluable work. Hayek, once again, explains the, by saying this, quote, the conflict between what it between what in its present mood the public expects science to achieve in satisfaction of popular hopes and what is really in its power is a serious matter. Because even if the true scientists should recognize all the limitations of what they can do in the field of human affairs, so long as the public expects more, there will always be some who will pretend and perhaps honestly believe that they can do more to meet popular demands than is really in their power. It's often difficult for the expert and certainly in many instances impossible for the layman to distinguish between legitimate and illegitimate claims advanced in the name of science. End quote. Now, people in all vocations have made difficult changes as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Dan Hugger says, I don't envy those in government who have the duty 
to make difficult decisions. He says those decisions, however, are theirs to make in service to their constituents. They are the product of their prudential judgment and cannot be laid at the feet of science. All Americans and those in government and citizens are subject and responsible to God from, from whom comes all power and wisdom. And he quotes from Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons, deposing some kings and establishing others. He gives wisdom to the wise. He imparts knowledge to those with understanding. Like I was saying earlier, just a touch of humility goes a long way. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about how much input should the public have when it comes to public policy. We'll be back right after these messages. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 is our number. Still to come in this half hour, we're going to be talking about uh, public choice theory and how we don't need to place higher faith in government than we do in our fellow man. In other words, how should public choice enter into the remedies to address a pandemic? Well, also, um, if I had time, I want to share with you, this is the one that's really a priority for me. It's an essay from Lawrence W. Reed, Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education, on how would the founders have handled such a crisis? I know they're not here, so it's not like, well, are you going to put words in their mouths? No, you can actually take their words that they wrote themselves and apply the same principles to what's going on today. It's amazing, and Larry Reed does a marvelous job. We'll get to that in a few minutes. In the meantime, we've got Ray on standby here. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. And and now, um, I'd like you to um, seriously consider... Of all of my degrees and all of my knowledge and experience, <laughs> and I'd, I'd like you to, um, you know, put put me into politics above you and give me all your money and 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 I will take care of you. Put your happiness in my hands. You don't need to decide or think about anything yourself. Now, a, a lot of people, you know, that they they um, they they know about an agency to be a free agent. You know, agency is the capacity, the um, state, you know, or condition of acting or exercising power, to exercise your power. But if you give your power up to someone else and you're no longer a free agent, you, you know, and, and people don't realize how important it is to exercise their agency. Um, for, for instance, um, you know, that which is easily discoverable our five senses you know on the other hand that which is not easily discoverable to our five senses let me ask you this a riddle what is it that you can't see smell taste touch or breathe yet it is always with you there is no escaping it whether um awake or asleep in dark or in light um at sea or on land it's, it's with you every moment of your life, and yet it is so real and so powerful that while you cannot see and feel, um, see and feel it, you can see and feel its effects every day and every moment of your life. What would that be? 
gravity. Oh, well said. Gravity. So, so even though, you know, there, there's some things that, that um, we know they exist by the effects, effects that, that they produce. And a lot of people don't realize that um, faith is in the same category. You know, faith is a power within us that we need to exercise, but we need to work our whole life growing that, that power within us. You know, the power to act and the power to make choices and learn from our good and bad decisions. Here's the problem that I see, Ray, and that is too many people have either been conditioned or just persuaded that, uh, hey, but I can put my faith in this person who's in a public office. And, and maybe it's because this person's wearing a three-piece suit. Maybe it's because this person's wearing a lab coat. Sometimes it's because that person is wearing a uniform. But they must know better than I do. I'm broken. I'm dumb. I'm, I'm helpless. And so it's, it's a learned kind of helplessness that persuades us, you know, we should put our faith in them. To, to make these calls. And unfortunately, as we're seeing today, this brings author- authoritarianism right out of those people in whom it may have been lurking all along. There's an article here from David S. Diamato on the American Institute for Economic Research website in which he talks about something called public choice theory, which attempts to apply the economic way of thinking to state actors. And he says it suggests that we should take incentives seriously rather than simply assuming that people in the so-called public sector must behave morally and care only for the public good. Now, he says the theoretical framework of public choice is decidedly not saying that you need to be overly cynical, convinced beforehand that everything the state does or could possibly do is part of an evil conspiracy. And frankly, we got a lot of that going on as well. But instead, he says it asks us to not be overly sanguine either to apply our assumptions about human beings and their behavior to the state in the same way we apply those assumptions to other human institutions. In other words, don't be romantic about political power and the way it operates. Now, David S. Diamato says this way of thinking is a powerful analytical corrective instrument in a world that too often, indeed almost always, treats political power and state actors as unique possessed of superhuman attributes like perfectly altruistic motivations, perfect information, perfect knowledge as to the downstream repercussions of their positive interventions. But that kind of thinking collapses upon scrutiny. And this is outlined by philosopher Christopher Freeman, who writes, if we assume that people act justly, the state isn't needed in the first place. On the other hand, if we assume that people act unjustly, then we should assume that the state itself will act unjustly too. This means that the state is only needed in conditions where we cannot count on it being just. Now, Freeman explains this as an example of self-obviating idealization. Our model of the state simply assumes away the very problem the state is supposed to solve. And David S. Diamato says that's not very helpful, is it? After all, if we just assume away, voila, the trickiest philosophical questions then we're not being very rigorous. And more importantly, we don't need to bother worrying about any social problems, including those to which the state was advanced as the solution in the first place. Now, if this insight seems obvious or trivial to the reader, then he says, then she's already made more progress in the direction of a sound political philosophy, as opposed to an ideological or blinkered philosophy than most professional political philosophers. 
He says, what we're observing during the coronavirus timeline is that most people are making exactly these ungrounded, unjustifiable assumptions about the state and its policy tools. They're laboring under the delusion that the state is kind of a godlike actor positioned above and outside of human beings, their societies and their relations. This is a way to avoid the felt psychological distress that would come from confronting some of the cold facts about the situation at hand. Number one, the state is made up of human beings who are no less fallible, selfish, or prone to error than anyone else. And number two, we actually know very little about the attributes of the virus. It's an excellent article. I strongly recommend it. It will be posted with the show notes. And again, it just it pubs, it poses the question. You know, public input, public choice, and the lockdowns. How much choice was the public given? How much of it did we voluntarily give away in the interest of, oh, make me feel safe? Bottom line is, we have to compare actually existing real-life voluntary solutions to actually existing real-life government actions, not just the idealized actions of a hypothetical government as unicorn. And public choice theory acts like an antidote to this kind of idealistic formulation of politics, political power, and the state. It opens the way to a more careful, sophisticated way to philosophize about those things, something we could really use right now as we watch the blunt force of the total state lay waste to our civil society and our way of life. By the way, in a related note, there are six things the COVID panic has taught us. Michael Tennant, who I believe writes for the 10th Amendment Center, has six real quick ones here. I'll, I'll let you go to the article yourself and you can check it out. But uh, those six things are no matter how many times the government has lied to them before, most people will believe it's its next tale. Next, one of the, th- the things that the COVID-19 panic has taught us, most politicians are dictators at heart. We've also learned that cops and soldiers are no friends of freedom. I know there are some good apples out there. There are also an awful lot of order takers and just following orders, heel clicker types. And we're, we're seeing very clearly they will do whatever they are ordered to do. Not good. The fourth lesson that we have learned from COVID-19 is that politicians are only concerned about the immediate consequences of their actions. They're not looking further ahead to see who else might be affected and in what ways. They just want to appear. I'm doing something decisive. Number five, the left is the left cares nothing about civil liberties. And number six, converting a relatively free democratic country into a totalitarian state is a snap. Just add fear. I think most of us have sat back and marveled at how quickly our entire culture and way of life and system of governance could be turned on its head and fear was the lever by which they flipped it over. I'll have this posted in the show notes again. This is the six things that COVID-19 panic has taught us. I agree with every one of the ones listed here by Michael Tennant. I would encourage you go to the show notes when we post this for podcast at lovingliberty.net. Share it widely. These may be painful lessons, but hey, if there's one good thing about uh, legitimate pain, it's that we learn from it and hopefully don't repeat those mistakes. When we come back, Lawrence W. Reed, how would the founders have handled a situation like the one that we are in? 
I think you're going to want to hear what he has to say. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right, let's talk about this. What would the founders do in a time of panic like COVID-19? Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education is uh, very, very well informed in the principles and practices of liberty. And he has a remarkable essay here published to just, I think it was published today, about what the founders would have done. And he uses the words of the founders themselves. So this is not him climbing into their heads and, well, you know, as an armchair psychiatrist, here's what I believe they would have said. We can actually look at what they would have said, look at the principles involved, and apply them as needed. And he starts with, uh, what would the founders do? WWTFD. Now, that's something he says I'd like to see on a bumper sticker on every car in America. In these crazy times of government-mandated lockdowns and spending binges, binges rather, and debt explosions, a country begun by the most extraordinary generation in history ought to take a moment and ponder that question. Today's progressives, a misnomer by several orders of magnitude, generally turn their noses up at the mere mention of the founders. They magnify the imperfections of men like Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Franklin, and Adams, and denigrate their contributions. For example, Woodrow Wilson, America's 28th president and progressive icon, chafed at the restrictions the Constitution placed upon the exercise of power. Separation of powers, checks and balances, and the like were obstacles to his ambitions for activist government. In fact, he once declared that the only fruit of dividing power had been to make it irresponsible. Larry Reed says, just as the progressive San Francisco school board painted over an old mural of George Washington at a local high school, those of a similar persuasion want to blot out the founders from textbooks and public discussion. Progressives assess the founding generation not by the customs of that day, but through the lens of today's progressive agenda, concentrated power wielded by an aristocracy steeped in know-it-all arrogance, stifling political correctness, self-righteous virtue signaling, and cosmic ignorance of both human nature and economics. Now, if that's your perspective, you can't help but see the likes of Jefferson as antiquated and irrelevant, as obstacles to be brushed aside. Progressives seek to restore the powers of the state that America's founders boldly stripped away, which makes progressivism profoundly regressive, a throwback to more or less the 14th century. He says, I see this quite often and vividly in the comments section of my Facebook page. When I quote Jefferson, a progressive or two will denounce the man as if he personified evil. He held slaves. To which Larry Reed responds, he was not perfect. His middle name wasn't God. He was a product of the 18th century, and he helped mightily to put the world on a new and better path. Can you confidently say that if you had been born in 1743, you would have accomplished as much good as Jefferson? That you would have been a paragon of virtue? I'm guessing that if you live to be a 100, you will not bless the cause of human liberty with even half what that man from Monticello gave us toward that end. Not to mention science, law, letters, architecture, education, and philosophy. (laughs) 
So cool your jets, Beethoven. (laughs) That is brilliant. Now, Larry Reed says epidemics are not a 21st century thing. The men and women of early America dealt many times with extensive and deadly diseases, including smallpox, cholera, measles, and yellow fever. They were well aware of the bubonic plague that came before and would visit again. And Larry Reed says, while I wouldn't pretend to know what the men and women of Washington's day might prescribe for a coronavirus response in ours, it's fair to say they believed statism to be no cure for anything, and in fact to be a mortal danger itself and deadlier than any pathogen. None of the crafters of the Constitution would ever stoop to approach legislation the way our progressive Speaker of the House once did. We have to pass the bill so you can find out what's in it. He says the founders would be the first among the first to tell you they didn't possess all the answers to everything. But they were confident that a free people would eventually come up with better answers than corrupt elites, some of whom appear to frolic in their own edicts. By the way, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is Exhibit A. To the Bill of Rights, Madison never suggested adding such language as weather permitting or if it's convenient, or pending executive approval, or unless otherwise overridden for a variety of special purposes and good intentions. He and the others at the Constitutional Convention knew that future power lusters would gladly drive a 20-mule team straight through such loopholes. At the very minimum, the founders would borrow from Larry's essay, A Nation's True Test Comes After the Crisis. Judge the leadership and character of those in power by how quickly they get off our backs, out of our pockets, and out of our way when the crisis is passed. And assess most harshly those who use the situation to enshrine the state as our master. What do you think? That sounds pretty spot on. Now, Larry says the founders themselves aren't available for consultation, but their words of warning and wisdom still are. So here's a selection worth your time and consideration. You, the reader, can decide their value in present circumstances. But he says, remember that those men and women endured hardships and challenges just as existentially serious as any we've experienced. They very much thought, put thought, let's try that again. They put much thought into what they did because at certain times their very lives depended on it. It's never a useless exercise to hear them out. We'll start with James Madison. The accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judicial, in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. Then you have Alexander Hamilton. It seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question, whether societies of men are really capable or not, of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. Let's get a female perspective. Here's Mercy Otis Warren from 1775. You should no longer piddle at the threshold. It is time to leap into the theater to unlock the bars and open every gate that impedes the rise and growth of the American Republic. By the way, she wasn't stumping for bigger government. Just so we're clear. I know you've heard Ben, ben Franklin's uh, s- statement. They that give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. How about this one from Thomas Jefferson? Honest, I'm sorry, honor, justice, and humanity forbid us tamely to surrender that freedom which we received from our gallant ancestors and which our innocent posterity have a right 
to receive from us. Here's Abigail Adams. I am more and more convinced that man is a dangerous creature and that power, whether invested in many or a few, is ever grasping. And like the grave cries, give, give. The great fish swallow up the small, and he who is most strenuous for the rights of the people when vested with power is as eager after the prerogatives of government. Back to Jefferson again. An honest man can feel no pleasure in the exercise of power over his fellow citizens. How about James Madison once more? The essence of government is power, and power, lodged as it must be in human hands, will ever be liable to abuse. By the way, he also said, when an excess of power prevails, property of no sort is duly respected. No man is safe as in, in his opinions, his person, his faculties, or his possessions. Alexander Hamilton said the sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by mortal power. Now let's get some firebrands in here. Here's Samuel Adams. The liberties of our country, the freedom of our civil constitution are worth defending at all hazards. It is our duty to defend them against all attacks. We have received them as a fair inheritance from our worthy ancestors. They purchased for us, they purchased them for us rather, with toil and danger and expense of treasure and blood, and transmitted them to us with care and diligence. It will bring an everlasting mark of infamy on the present generation, enlightened as it is, if we should suffer them to be wrested from us by violence or without without a struggle, or be cheated out of them by the artifices of false and designing men. Of the latter, we are in most danger at present. Let us therefore be aware of it and resolve to and let us contemplate our forefathers and posterity and resolve to maintain the rights bequeathed to us from the former for the sake of the latter. All right, one last one. This is from Thomas Paine. Men who look upon themselves born to reign and others to obey soon grow insolent. Selected from the rest of mankind, their minds are early poisoned at it by importance, and the world they act in differs so materially from the world at large that they have but little opportunity of knowing its true interest, and when they succeed to the, go- to the government are frequently the most ignorant and unfit of any throughout the dominions. Yep, I'd say their words still have some relevance today. What can we do with those words? Learn them, take them to heart, internalize the principles on which they're based, and then stand for them. Really, it's that simple. 